Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, some appreciation for the backside. Yes, the back half of the field. Who's fast, who's skilled, and why it's relevant. Plus, our Pocono preview and all the important things you should know about PJ1, pit strategy, and playoff bubbles. But first, as always, this is episode 27 of Positive Regression. This is the Jimmy Spencer episode. David, Mr. Excitement. Think back to the early 90s, a beautiful number 27 McDonald's car driven by a character of a driver, a character of a person in Jimmy Spencer. And David, first thing I'll say is, in, in remembering back to Jimmy Spencer, this your mind can play tricks on you because... If you would have told me how long was Jimmy Spencer in the 27 car, I would have been like, oh, a good two, three years. I got a lot of memories of Jimmy Spencer. David, it it was one season and it wasn't even a full season that Jimmy Spencer drove the McDonald's car, yet it is stuck in my mind forever. Yeah. And wow, I'm, I'm trying to think of the way to best discuss Jimmy Spencer to maybe the younger fans that really don't quite grasp what he was and what he did. I would not call him crash prone per se. I think Mr. Excitement was a little bit tongue in cheek. He was certainly a bull in a china shop. I think that is the best example for him. But I actually pulled a quote from the New York Times. Jerry Nadu, uh, speaking on Jimmy Spencer, said that if I had to go racing with him, side by side for 25 laps, I'd feel pretty worried. So <laughs> there, there, that's that's a pretty solid uh, in a nutshell summary of Mr. Excitement himself. But that number 27 car, I think every every kid kind of uh, Doug McDonald's, I think we can uh, attribute that to some very savvy marketing by a clown, a purple thing, a hamburglar and uh <laughs> you know, a a solid uh, marketing department aiming to uh, get saturated fats in front of kids. But that Daytona win before the uh, 1994 Pepsi 400, uh, Jimmy Spencer, who had never won a NASCAR Cup Series race, told John Kernan of ESPN that Dale Earnhardt's car was the only car in that race that he was worried about and said that he, Jimmy Spencer, had the second best car in the field. Um, I mean, kind of, kind of far fetched because I don't, I don't know that he had a reason to think that, or did he? Because <laughs> he was driving for he was driving for Junior Johnson, and it was uh, an incredible race. If you're able to go back and watch that, it's probably on YouTube somewhere. But it wasn't a normal drafting race. The draft broke apart. And uh, the end of the race, it was between him and Ernie Irvin in the Robert Yates 28 car, uh, a two-man battle for about the final seven or eight laps. And uh, Spencer trailed Irvin until the final lap. Spencer rode high in the turns um, in, uh, in one and two, and then right as the elevation changed on the exit of two, he dipped into the bottom lane And while he couldn't complete the pass then, he hung with Irvin all the way to the stripe where he nipped him, uh, won in a a side-by-side finish, his first career Cup Series win. And uh, later in the summer, soon after that, he won at Talladega. Mm -hmm. So boom, pocketed a pair of drafting track victories uh, for Junior Johnson 
and McDonald's. Those were the only two wins of his career. But, Alan, scandal arose. Dun, dun, dun. No. Jimmy Spencer had an illegal manifold on his car for both of those wins. And we know this because NASCAR deemed that manifold illegal prior to the 1995 Daytona 500 when Junior Johnson put it on his car. And Junior Johnson went on the record saying it was the same manifold. Nothing changed. Hmm. And there are conspiracy theorists that think McDonald's was considering leaving the sport at this time. Uh, McDonald's was also an official partner of NASCAR. They were the official fast food, something, I don't know, burger, what have you. Um, So the car was allowed through inspection in hopes that the number 27 car would give McDonald's some time out front in two of the most watched races of the season. Interesting. Junior Johnson was livid. He (laughs) uh, decided uh, that year he would sell his team um, before the end of the 1995 season. And that was it. Jimmy Spencer gave Junior Johnson his final win as a car owner. And to top this all off, Alan, a hat tip to uh, to NASCAR man on Twitter. He's a good follow if you like uh, NASCAR histories, NASCAR underscore RR. He tweeted out last weekend that it's been 25 years since a car sponsored by McDonald's has won a points paying NASCAR Cup Series race. That's right. Jimmy Spencer was the most recent winner for McDonald's, and that is now a span of 410 races. Interesting for such a huge sponsor. A good piece and a good nugget of trivia. Uh, Oh, yeah. I was hoping the Thunderbat would have got something for Bill Elliott, but he never did. (laughs) But no, no, Jimmy Spencer, look, one of those guys, you know, after the 27 car went on to have another classic paint scheme with the 23 and Joe Camel uh, and then went on to Chip Ganassi racing. I mean, his career did not end. It never got another win and never really produced so much, but he stayed in the sport for a long time and then became a, a extremely large personality after he stopped driving. But uh, I'll just never, I still have a little diecast, the 164th. It's one of the few that I opened back, back in the day. And I still have the racing champions, number 27 McDonald's uh, diecast. I had the uh, the both of the Smoke and Joe number 23 and eventually became the Winston number 23. And because it was sponsored uh, by a cigarette company, uh, I had to take a screwdriver and pry it off of like this really hard case because I played with my cars. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, we, I straight up had races, but I had to like get this thing out. I mean, it was actually an event. I think that was I think that's where I learned how to use a screwdriver. It was just getting die casts off of cases that had. Uh, you know, uh, sponsors not suited for youthful eyes, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I, I think we, uh, fair to say we will never forget uh, Jimmy Spencer. He was a uh, large personality is one good way to put it. Uh, very opinionated, always entertaining. The original Mr. Excitement, Jimmy Spencer. Good stuff. All right, let's get to it. Uh, one thing that we have we always kind of touch on, but David, I, we're going to dedicate some time to it right now, and that is where this podcast can be really important and where someone like myself really does learn a lot from your uh, work, from your analysis, from your scouting, and we're talking about the back half of the field and the drivers that, uh, that live there, if you will, in the equipment for teams, the, the have-nots, if you will, the lower-budget teams. These are, for the most part, generally very talented race car drivers still 
in the highest levels of stock car racing in America. But as you know, we know, you're only as good as your equipment sometimes, and not all equipment is created equal. But David, through the numbers, through data, through analytics, through your scouting, you can extrapolate the talent and skills that some of these drivers have and see it on paper and see the difference they are making, even if they were are with a back marker team. And that's something we're going to dig into right now. And what sparked this for me, David, is a few episodes ago, you mentioned that by one metric, Reed Sorensen is one of the best passers in all of the Cup Series. And I was like, what are you talking about? But then when you explain it fully, it makes a lot of sense because it has to do with who he's racing around and his ability to make efficient passes on them. You can explain a little more. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, as it pertains to Sorensen... Sorensen's a good driver. Uh, he's just not in equipment that I would deem competitive enough to win a race by traditional methods. But when you consider he is racing around the likes of Quinn Huff and Bailey Curry and Cody Ware, um, yeah, he's going to have an easy time figuring out how to get by those guys. Now, if we put Sorensen in better equipment, would he be able to do that? Let's say in the middle of the field against Daniel Suarez, Austin Dillon, uh, Paul Menard. Maybe he still has success or maybe he finds it a little bit more difficult, but the numbers are real. He is making passes. It's against competition that he is significantly better than. And from the surplus passing value metric, we can tell that Reed Sorensen probably better than what we know from his running whereabouts. And using that an example like that, we're going to go down a list of some drivers and and talk about them and kind of extrapolate a little more and give them a little more attention and, and shed some light onto what they're exactly doing on the track, even if they may not even think of a top 20 once in a while. You know what I mean? So let's start uh, let's start with Corey LaJoy in the Cup Series, a uh, young driver. David, we're going to get into it about Corey LaJoy, but w- what I'll say is just from someone he has that reputation in the garage at least i can tell people as one of those drivers that you know he could be the next um let's say you know alex bowman or matt de benedetto in terms of a driver with a lot of talent who just needs a chance and good equipment and he could really show his talent you know the, the driver who has a lot of talent just not the equipment to show it right now he comes with that reputation if we look take a look at deeper look at the data what does it tell us david about Corey lejoy He ranks 20th in production and equal equipment rating, and that's important to know because it's higher than the likes of one name you already mentioned, Matt DiBenedetto, uh, Ross Chastain, Paul Menard, William Byron, and uh, and everyone named Dylan. We forget, Corey LaJoy was a very well-regarded prospect. Uh, I believe it was Ryan McGee for ESPN Magazine that named him... uh, NASCAR's uh, number one prospect in in their annual next issue. I don't know if we have any former ESPN magazine subscribers, but uh, they used to do that. And uh, and LaJoy received a lot of hype, but I think now he's in the post-hype prospect period of his career because he didn't get a strong opportunity out of the gate. Uh, But he's proving that he probably should have. Right now, he has the Second biggest disparity between laps completed in the top 15 and finishes inside the top 15, suggesting uh, some overachieving was in the works with his results. And that's good if you're LaJoy, but likely not sustainable 
if you're realistic. Uh, I think the only way that he's going to maintain uh, his kind of results getting pattern is if he just had a better car. And I'm not sure that's the case. He's a cog in Randy Cox's green flag pit stop machine. Uh, we talked about this in our crew chief draft episode, but Randy Cox led the cup series last year in positions gained on green flag pit cycles on behalf of Matt Benedetto. And he's doing more of the same this year. He has 42 this year with LaJoy. So it's clear that he's running his game plan back. But this also means this level of aggression comes with an opportunity cost. And that's penalties. Corey LaJoy has more pit road speeding penalties than any other driver so far this season. Caught speeding on seven occasions. And that's not an indictment on him. That's not an inability. That's just what happens sometimes when you're uh, driving into the neutral zones hot and can't break uh, to the appropriate speed before NASCAR starts monitoring pit road speeds. We've talked about it before on this podcast. This is a deliberate tactic by Joe Gibbs Racing, and it's the same here for this number 32 team. Uh, And when you consider what this team has, it's something that they just have to do. Uh, So let's talk about go fast racing. Team owner Archie St. Hilaire said that the 2018 season was the most he's ever spent on racing in his life. And while he overextended himself to satisfy Matt DiBenedetto, he could not sustain that kind of spending and remain in business. So he took some steps backward in 2019. LaJoy isn't getting the type of heat, if we can call it that, that Benedetto received in 2018. But I think this right now is a good spot to be in for the 32 team if they want to survive. And LaJoy has been fairly dutiful in conserving the equipment among full-time drivers. He holds one of the five cleanest crash rates Uh, It's at 0.15 times per race. And considering that LaJoy was criticized earlier in his career for his crashing, this is a really nice compromise. It actually represents a lot of hard work and improvement. He does have aggression. He he can get around the, uh, the track now, but he isn't killing his car to do it. And to me, that's what makes him just a perfect hire Uh, by Archie St. Hilaire and this 32 team. Keeping your equipment on the track and clean is a huge asset for a driver, especially one that wants to stick around. So good stuff from there about Corey LaJoy, another driver who uh, known, I mean, I don't know him for getting in many wrecks. Uh, Let's talk some Landon Castle because Landon Castle has been around for, for quite a while actually, and is known for, you know, again, keeping it clean, keeping the car out there on the track, potential threat, maybe once in a while at a super speedway. But uh, when we talk about skill, do not forget Landon Castle has a championship ring from Hendrick Motorsports. Landon Castle was one of their test drivers way back in the day when teams were allowed to test almost, uh, I mean, unlimited, if you will. Uh, Landon Castle put a lot of laps in for Hendrick Motorsports and earned himself a championship ring during one of uh, Jimmy Johnson's championship reigns. But now let's talk about what he's doing out there on the track, David, because looking at the numbers, he has an average finish of 30.1 this season in the Cup Series, at least. Is that cutting it? Is that Landon Castle style? 
Well, I, I don't know that he's allowed to have a style just yet because Starcom Racing is what now maybe a year and a half old. They don't have the resources built up to allow him to go for broke in the pursuit of better finishes than the ones he's getting. And one of the things that tells me that that's probably not part of the game plan is you mentioned it. He rarely crashes. It's his best quality. Uh, he had the second cleanest crash rate in 2014. He had the cleanest crash rate in 2015, wow. had the cleanest crash rate last year. So he gets it. He knows to nurse the equipment he's in. And you mentioned the championship ring. Uh, look, he was integral in getting Hendrick Motorsports uh, set up with their COT program, uh, helped bring it to an elite stature. Uh, he may have been rewarded with more than that. I mean, he was there for uh, for a, a long part of Jimmy Johnson's run. But more importantly, he's a thinker. He thinks about the sport, which sounds like it should be a prerequisite <laughs> for driving race cars. But I assure you, uh, it is not. Um, he thinks about how to get by guys. He, he I, I will say this. He hasn't earned a positive surplus passing value since 2016. And right now he ranks as the least efficient passer in the series by a considerable margin this season, negative 7.91% following New Hampshire. And that actually makes me wonder if he's affected by the new rules package, similar to how Kevin Harvick and Kyle Larson were sent adrift. I don't have a lot of telemetry data on Castle, but I'm going to assume he probably did a lot of his work in the corners uh, but nevertheless, I, I don't believe Starcom Racing is in a position to push harder than they already are. So it may be OK. Castle won't wreck the car and he will supply good feedback. Uh, he takes on similar roles in the Xfinity series with JD Motorsports and with Morgan Shepard's team from time to time. Uh, Johnny Davis, by the way, once told me that Landon was the best driver he's ever employed and this was uh, this was before the Ross Chastain revelation, but concurrent with Ryan Priest being in his car. Uh, so uh, appreciated by those who employ him. And I have to imagine that Starcom has been pleased uh, with his uh, effort so far. Interesting stuff. Landon Castle. Moving on. Next one. A name we know uh, quite the character. Just looking at him. BJ McLeod. Uh, BJ McLeod, we see from time to time in the Cup Series and also the Xfinity Series. Uh, admittedly, you don't think much of him. You think, you know, we're talking back markers here and the back half of the field. Uh, what should people know about BJ McLeod's performance out there on the track, David? Well, I'm curious. What what do you when you when you look at BJ because he he does have a style. What what do you think about him? Uh, a character. I mean, he certainly, it's, it's, he is certainly identifiable in the cup garage with his slick backed hair, you know, the the style of clothes that he wears, but admittedly, I don't know much uh, about him or what he does. I know, look, there are some people, whether you listen to radioactive or you're just scanning on a race, you know, each weekend, uh, there are some people that get a reputation of being in the way or, you know, those damn lap cars. BJ McLeod is never one of them. You know, I never hear much uh, ill will toward that car. Sometimes I think it's the 52 car that he's in. I, I never hear him here or the 51, never hear much about him. Really, you know, he's out there making laps, finishing races, and that's as much as I know about him. 
for better or for worse. Yeah. So, so the perception is that he's just, he looks loud, right? The, the yeah. jet black <laughs> hair, the, the loud clothing, but he's actually a soft spoken, very nice guy, um, and a, and a blue collar worker. But, uh, to me, BJ is the perfect embodiment of the quality of the NASCAR cup series. When he makes a cup series start, he's actively trying to not finish last. He <laughs> drives for Rick Ware racing. And last place is probable every week. But I assure you, BJ McLeod is not a slouch. He's never been a slouch. Uh, His short track roots stem from Florida and New Smyrna Speedway. And I watched him often from 2006 to 2009. In that span, he won seven times in 20 starts at New Smyrna. And that was with a team that I would not have rated, uh, and, and please excuse my impolite phrasing, I didn't think of them as progressive racers who pushed boundaries. It, it was <laughs> a very old school team with a, a an old hat methodology that shouldn't have been as competitive as it was. Fast forward to now. McLeod owns three Xfinity Series entries, And he doesn't even drive one of them on a regular basis. He drives for JD Motorsports, which helps pay for his own team as someone who writes for The Athletic to help pay for motorsports analytics. And this very podcast, I can respect that. Uh, (laughs) BJ McLeod is doing what he has to do. And while I would say that he's treading water with JD Motorsports, only a, a 0.294 peer so far and a negative overall surplus passing value. He is one of the four most efficient short track passers in the Xfinity series. He's able to get by some of the the guys that are around him on the smaller tracks. And he's also a positive overall passer in the Cup series. So uh, similar to Reed Sorensen, BJ McLeod, not challenged much by the Cody Wares and Bailey Currys of the world. And uh, again, for for these owners, he is carrying the water uh, in both of these series. His crash rates are below 0.12 times per race. Very clean. Makes sense. He is an owner of equipment and he is taking care of equipment. And that's all you can ask for, right? Is get the most and best out of your equipment if you are a driver in the back half of the field. That was BJ McLeod. Next up, Parker Kligerman, uh, race car driver turned uh, broadcaster. Pretty good at both of them, I believe. But uh, I've seen him in the truck series. You know, I've covered a few of those races that he's been in. And, you know, he's great at the plate tracks. Always a threat at Talladega if he can be in a truck there. Uh, I remember him threatening at Dover last year and coming down with a mechanical problem. Again, not the best team that he's always with, but he can get the most out of it when he's in a truck race. So uh, what should we know about Parker Kligerman when he is out there on the racetrack, David? You know, we forget he won nine ARCA series races as an 18 year old, and that just should not go overlooked. Um, But at the NASCAR level, he ranked third in truck series peer in 2012. He ranked ninth in truck series peer in 2016. And among plus passers in the truck series in 2017, he ranked second in peer. Kyle Busch ranked uh, first that year, while Kligerman ranked ahead of Christopher Bell, Johnny Sauter Hmm. and Grant Enfinger. He's not in the truck series this season, but was projected for the second best production rating Uh, this year in the Cup Series. He's the same age as both Daniel Hemrick and Ryan Priest. Wow. And he's a year younger than Landon Castle. 
and he ranks ahead of all of them in peer. Uh, I credit Marty Gaunt for putting him huh. behind the wheel of his cup car because that was a job offer that just did not come from anyone else. I had a chance to work with Parker in my last agency stop, and I produced many uh, statistical sizzle packets on his behalf. Uh, but there was so much resistance by other owners. And uh, that resistance, in my opinion, was nonsensical because the reasoning was that most of them didn't believe he could be both a TV personality and a driver. And that is, unfortunately, the kind of inside-the-box thinking I've become familiar with in the NASCAR industry. I don't understand it, uh, especially now. Regan Smith is in virtually the same role, uh, but is quick to gain employment. That isn't a knock on Regan. It's just the truth. It's frustrating to witness for Parker, but he offers some pretty reliable long-run passing, which is something every team in the second portion of a cup series field should find valuable and something that he's put to good use in the NASCAR truck series. A lot of good stuff about Parker Kligerman. Unfortunately, what I remember is, you know, his first big what cup opportunity was with Swan Racing and he flipped at Daytona. Remember that? And then a few weeks later, Swan Racing didn't even exist anymore. I mean, he had a big press conference with 50 Cent. Currently, at the moment, David, I am wearing... SMS headphones, which was the sponsor that 50 Cent was associated with, and Parker Kligerman and Swan Racing. Remember, he was like part owner or something of that team. It was a it was a crazy time in what 2015 or so or 2013, whenever that was. Uh, those are some of the memories I have of Parker Kligerman. And also, I was once congratulated on my Talladega victory by someone at Martinsville, a fan who thought I was indeed Parker Kligerman. If only I could be that good at driving a, oh. a race car. Did you sign an autograph? I did not, but uh, oh, okay. I gladly said, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, oh, uh, you should have you really thanked all the guys back in the shop for that. Oh, one. yeah, totally. I mean, it, was, it was a great win at Talladega. Interesting stuff about Parker Kligerman, especially hearing his age. You always bring up people's age, and it really opens up a lot of eyes, and my eyes anyway, in terms of people who are getting an opportunity and when, and some people who got it. It, it, it almost seems like too early, and then they become damaged goods in, in the minds of some. Uh, maybe that's a, a, not the right wording, but it just seems like a perception gets uh, put on some drivers if they don't succeed right away. And then you imagine what they would be doing at their current age. And it's crazy to think about. And in his case, his team went away. Uh, it just it just he, he went to work one day and they had closed shop. And that was uh, for some reason he was penalized for that. Uh, I can't really explain that too well other than. He's a good driver, and he probably deserves to not be sitting in the peanut gallery with uh, with you and me. <laughs> well, he's good at that job as well. All right, moving on. One more. Uh, Ronnie Bassett. David, I'm not going to pretend to know much about Ronnie Bassett. Uh, you made the list. And, you know, We went back and forth a little bit. Drivers we want to talk about. Why did you include Ronnie Bassett? What should we know about him? Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of glad you brought that up. For those just now becoming familiar with Ronnie Bassett, uh, the Bassett brothers in general, uh, welcome to this entertaining show. Ronnie and Dylan Bassett were for years the most entertaining, most electric part of the NASCAR K&N Pro Series East. They are hated by a lot of their competitors, Ooh. but I could not possibly love them any more <laughs> than I do. 
uh, the Canaan East had become homogenized and boring and the Bassets were rattling cages. The, the series needed them. Uh, they were never selected for NASCAR next. Uh, they were not viewed as marketable by NASCAR's higher ups, but their story is a good one. Uh, they competed for their family's race team. And in 2016, their shop on their property burned down and they built everything back up uh, from the ground up. And uh, and Ronnie Bassett in the very next season in 2017 ranked third in K&N East Pier uh, was the big bounce back season after the fire. Ronnie in his first year in the Xfinity series, he's driving for Mario Goslin. It's it's been a little bit tough. Uh, he's at a negative pier, but his crash frequency is okay, and he's been an above-par passer. Uh, considering he is a part-time rookie, that's something that uh, isn't always expected. Uh, it's it's a nice surprise. I would imagine if he's able to get more races underneath him, he might string some good finishes together, um, but I've liked what I've seen from him in the past. Uh, I encourage our listeners to uh, keep watch of him moving forward. Interesting stuff. I like that. And finally, to the truck series, Josh Rayum, uh, a name that I have come to know because um, you know I'm down there covering the truck series for FS1. Um, you know the way you mentioned BJ McLeod, you know owning and doing what he has to to make it. I kind of think uh, I think that can describe Josh Rayum in the truck series, right? He has multiple trucks, doesn't always run them. But when he does, um, something else you mentioned, you know, it's a battle not to finish last every week. Uh, He has an average finish of 23, which means at least every week he's beating nine other trucks, which has to be somewhat helpful if you're trying to, uh, just in terms of performance, get a little more money. Um, Not bad. You know, it's not something we never think of him as a threat or anything, uh, but it's not like he's out there starting parking always. And uh, what, what, what should we know about Josh Rayum? I mean, for a guy going to the track every weekend uh, with a team that he created with his brother, uh, I can't imagine that things could be any better. He's competed nine times this season, and his stat line, pretty good. Uh, 1.333 peer. He ranks 18th among 35 drivers in that regard. He has not crashed at all which all but guarantees he'll crash at Pocono now. And <laughs> and he holds a high surplus passing value, plus 4.66%. That is the best among all drivers with as many as nine starts. That is terrific. Uh, his average running position is 25.4, which means his, uh, his average finishes is, is better. It means the drivers he's around most are Natalie Decker, Jennifer Joe Cobb, and Corbin Forrester. Uh, he has no problem getting around them. Do I think he's a future star? Uh, no. I mean, I don't know, but I, I know that I would like to see more of him in better equipment. And there are things that are going to have to happen that are probably beyond his control. Someone's going to have to be willing to take a chance uh, or he's going to have to come into some funding that will allow him to create a better chance. But right now, even his stat line suggests that he's uh, he's making hay. He's doing about as well as he possibly can. Good stuff. And I remember he, you know, he had a top 10 in Daytona and we interviewed him the next week uh, in Atlanta. And that was a big deal. You know, we don't always interview the Josh Rayomes of the world, but when they earn it, we love telling those stories. And David, let's just sum up this whole conversation about backmarkers, because what I think people should walk away with why we look at this is because there are talented drivers and there is bad and underfunded equipment, if you will. 
And it's important, I think, just for people to remember that, that all these drivers had careers, or, or at least a lot of them, I and mean, ones we highlight, you know, it's not everyone, but there are drivers that had plenty of success and careers before making it to the highest levels, and not everyone will always get the same opportunity, but there is talent back there. I think people should walk away with that, David. Yes, and I think I can probably put a pretty good bow on this. Uh, I scouted for years. I went to short tracks. I saw late model races, uh, open wheel races, and legend car races. And, and when you see short track racing on a regular basis, here is something that they do not tell you, Alan. You see a lot of terrible, bad <laughs> racing. And when so when I'm why I'm I'm at home, I get to see the Cup Series, the Xfinity Series, and even in the back half of the Truck Series. I can respect that talent um, because that is good, heady racing. And the reason for that is that the majority of these guys came from somewhere and were very likely good at that place. We talked about Ryan Sieg on this podcast. He was a really scrappy, interesting late model driver that only just now popped in the Xfinity series. He wasn't a scrub that just fell backwards into this. He's a guy that's always had talent, uh, but just had to come up the hard way. And we're just now understanding that, okay, he he does have a little bit of game to compete maybe in the second or third tier of the Xfinity series field. Uh, and that's what I want our listeners to take away is that just because someone is is running last in the cup series or trying to not finish last doesn't mean they're bad. Uh, the BJ McLeods of the world, the Landon Castles of the world, they were very good at the short track level. Uh, and right now they are doing everything that is asked of them by their owners uh, with limited resources. And they're more than getting by in the cup series. They're proving their worth. Excellent way to sum it up. Great discussion there. Let's move on. We're going to Pocono. The trucks will be there on Saturday on Big Fox, uh, the Fox Network. And then uh, the cup guys will be there on Sunday for the second race of the season. What will be different then the first time we went there, David, is the application of PJ1, the sticky stuff, whatever you want to call it, uh, track bite, what have you. It's going to be all over Pocono for the first time. Uh, this week for Race Hub, I talked with Rodney Childers. I'm asking him what to expect. I'm like, are you sure it's going to be in every corner? He said yes. I'm like, what is that even going to mean? I mean, think of that first corner, that high-speed corner, uh, that first, you know, coming off the long straightaway in Pocono, you know, we'll... we'll PJ one help there. We're going to see a lot of outside two lane passing. I'm not sure the tunnel turn is even tighter. I wonder, you know, how, how much they're going to take advantage of it there. But I think the long sweeping turn, turn three, you know, maybe we'll get a double lane up there and some grip and we'll see some good racing. Uh, you know, I, I can see the appeal of sticky stuff at other tracks. I'm just, I'm interested in the mystery of it at uh, Pocono and where it's going to be useful and what kind of difference it is going to make. What do you think we should expect of it? Okay, so that is a, a very good question. Um, I'll, I'll start off with this, and it's probably well-documented by now, but I will reiterate it. I'm not a fan of the intent from both NASCAR and the RTA behind the 2019 rules package. Having said that, citing the lack of action in the last Pocono race as a reason as to why this package is a failure seems a little strange <laughs> because we we probably could have poked at a lack of action at Pocono 
I don't know, for <laughs> the, the, the last few years, the last many years. I mean, so I mean, look, Alan, out of curiosity, and please be honest, yes or no, is Pocono among your five favorite races in each NASCAR season? Probably not, unless we get one of those crazy wild restarts. Um, since it's gone to 500, 400 miles, it's certainly grown on me a lot. Uh, it's improved its racing a little bit, but no, top five, being honest, unless there's some crazy restart at the end, I don't think of it as one of the, like the standout memorable races of the year, generally. You hedged like a professional right there. Um, <laughs> I'm just being honest. I mean, if you have a crazy I, restart at the end, I'm going to say that was amazing. You know what I mean? But uh, we don't often get those, but we have that potential at least. So that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> I I think one would be hard pressed to find any fan who is regularly wowed by Pocono. It has, for the most part, always been an uneventful racetrack, even with its quirks, the weird shape, uh, the different style of turns, the wide restart range, but it's never been a showstopper. So to me, the PJ one is being used to fit a square peg into a round hole. I will say that from the team members I've talked with, NASCAR's efforts with the PJ one are getting smarter and more effective. But there's yet to be any serious quantifiable difference. Uh, case in point, with Bristol, the restart disparity is the worst in the sport. It's always been the worst in the sport. That giant difference has never been alleviated, and they've put down PJ1 there. Nothing has changed. We're going to run the same experiment here. In the race there earlier this year, the outside groove successfully defended position. 80% of the time, while those in the inside groove did so 39% of the time. And within the first seven rows, those in the outside gained a net of 10 positions. Those in the inside lost 71 positions. Mm. We're going to use those numbers as a baseline, and we're going to come back to this later. Because if the PJ1 is to work for one specific lane, if it is to create side-by-side -side racing and to make another lane amenable, we theoretically should see that on restarts. I'm sure it's possible, but turning Pocono into something that it isn't is something I'll need to see in order to believe. Uh, and I want to see if those changes occur in the restart numbers. Well, as Rodney Childers told me this week, at least they have two 50-minute sessions to figure it out before the race, and then the race will change everything. All right, uh, Pocono, one of those tracks that we saw earlier this year, David, where there is, with the advent of stage racing and stage points, there are certain races where early on you can determine, you can just see which teams can use their pit strategy that are clearly going to plan for the end of the race and the win. And there are other teams who can plan for the what's right in front of them, go out, grab stage points, ultimately hurt their chances at the win, but also gain as many stage points as possible. We saw that in the first Pocono race, and we will likely see it again in this race. There will be teams with two different points of view, two different mindsets, two different strategies in terms of getting the points immediately or focusing on being in position for a win. That's what you can do at Pocono with stage racing and the way the pit windows are. We will see that. 
Now, this can affect teams who are on that playoff borderline because every point counts, yet you have the other side where a win changes everything. What do you think about a race like this? I wrote about these specific scenarios last week for The Athletic. We're going to see teams either fall back on their tendencies and based on the data, there are clear tendencies or we're going to see some course corrections as last minute gambits for playoff spots. But let's look at the tendencies because that's that's what we know, not what we think we know. What we know, I expect Kyle Larson to stay out and collect stage points. I expect William Byron to do the same. Same for Ty Dillon, Daniel Suarez, Paul Menard, Jimmy Johnson, Alex Bowman, Chris Buescher, Ryan Newman, and Ryan Priest. I say that because among the full-timers, they are the most frequent teams that do this. Uh, I mentioned in uh, in that athletic piece uh, about the uh, the Chads, Johnston and Canals, <laughs> uh, specifically the job they've done this year during these precise scenarios. The 42 and the 24 are winless in 2019, as are the majority of those teams that I just mentioned. This is the kind of strategy, just padding points, that would give them a lift if needed over the playoff borderline. And interestingly enough, uh, the crew chief with the most positions gained in these situations is Mike Kelly with 50, who is switching teams starting this weekend, moving within front row motorsports to the 38 team and David Reagan, uh, Kelly replacing Seth Barber, who cost Reagan 19 positions in these same situations. And as for the the opposite end of that spectrum, the drivers least likely to stay out, the teams of Eric Jones, Martin Truex, Chase Elliott, Kyle Busch, and Ryan Blaney. If you're Eric Jones, uh, this is bad. You need all the points you can get. And the 20 team has seeded 82 spots in these scenarios. That's some valuable stage points down the drain. Uh, so perhaps- explain that again. In the scenarios where this would have worked, these two strategies, some teams chose have chosen to go out and chase these points. The 20 team ha- has chosen not to. And clearly they could have collected points throughout these all opportunities. And what they've left on the table is 82 points. They went for wins, Alan. Uh, and, and for the most part, that's what the Joe Gibbs racing teams have done. But... Different from Kyle Busch and Martin Truex, who can rely on wins. They're already firmly locked in the playoffs, as is Denny Hamlin, but he's been uh, less aggressive in chasing wins. He's kind of done his own thing. Chris Gabehart, rookie crew chief, doing some cool stuff. The 20 team has been a head scratcher. Uh, I don't know if this is by design. I don't know that it has just been absent. Uh, from the mind of the uh, the crew chief bringing the 20 car to pit road, but they've uh, they've lost 82 spots in seven green flag pit cycles, uh, wherein they could have collected some some pretty impactful points. Uh, perhaps the playoff push will change things there. In Jones's last 10 races, he scored seven finishes of eighth or better. So you know what, maybe he'll go out and uh, and win in this final regular season stretch and this conversation won't even matter. But if they don't make the playoffs, we'll probably be looking back on that number 
of physicians lost in these kind of scenarios. Something I will uh, point out, but you put that article out about this pit strategy and positions lost before the New Hampshire race. Uh, I'm not saying they read it, but in that first stage in New Hampshire, Eric Jones stayed out and collected eight valuable uh, um, uh, eight valuable stage points. They they took that strategy for the first time, and it just clicked in my head. I was like, I bet they read David's article. I can't I can't confirm that. I'm just saying after reading about the poor strategy choices, they go out and they get valuable stage points. They chose that strategy. In New Hampshire, I thought that was pretty funny, David. <laughs> I'll send some text messages and see what I can uh, sleuth out. All right, good to hear. Well, talking about teams like Eric Jones on that playoff borderline, uh, we look to Pocono. And so, yeah, let's pick who is best suited for this race. Of the drivers on that playoff borderline, where a win changes everything, but stage points, all the points you can collect are are of the most importance. I'll let you go first, David. Who is best suited for a race like Pocono? Best suited? I I mean, I have two answers. I think one is more historic uh, based on history. One is based on now. Um, But the first would be Clint Boyer. He has the fifth fastest car on the two mile tracks this season, and he's got three of them remaining on the regular season schedule between this weekend, Michigan and Indianapolis. The team has been awful of late, but this track type has been their strong suit since 2017. They got a win at Michigan in 2018. I don't think there's an excuse at Pocono for them to have a bad day, but we will see. My other pick is Eric Jones and the 20 team. That's where I was going. (laughs) But like I mentioned, they, they, they didn't stockpile points, so they need the finish. And I, I mean, well, I mean, they they need anything and everything, any kind of points they can get, but the finish for sure. And as of late, he's been delivering those finishes. Uh, Yeah, I was going to pick Eric Jones as well. I mean, he was third, I believe, in the first Pocono race this year. Uh, So, you know, a driver that needs a good finish going to a track where he's done it before this season. Uh, Things lining up good for Eric Jones, you know, in terms of needing those points and keeping solidifying that playoff position. One name I want to throw out there, David, only because... Uh, it's kind of blowing my mind what he's doing right now. Ryan Newman. Ryan Newman has five top tens in the last six races. And then I check the central speed rankings, and he is doing that in the 21st fastest car in the field. Five top tens in six races with the 21st fastest car. If I'm thinking like David Smith, I'm saying this is a potential for regression. Am I correct? Yes, you are. Because I mentioned Earlier in the episode, Corey LaJoy had the second biggest disparity uh, between top 15 completed laps and top 15 finishes. The biggest disparity belongs to Newman. Uh, (laughs) So can he keep that up? Um, Boy, that is a that is a very good question. The one thing this this team seems to be doing well is that they just aren't shooting themselves in the foot. Scott Graves has kept Newman out at the ends of stages. I mentioned he's up there in that group. They've collected 32 positions over the course of the seven green flag pit cycles that fit uh, that designation. Uh, So look, I mean, if you're not making mistakes, then yeah, you can finish a lot better than how you perform. And that's what they're doing. We'll see if he can keep it up at Pocono as uh, he's trying to make, uh, in a fun way, trying to uh, get one of those final playoff positions. Uh, Finally, what we do every week, what do we want to see happen, David? I will give you the floor. What do you want to see in Pocono? I want to see the square peg become a round hole. Um, (laughs) Look, Pocono, I I, I don't know. I don't don't know what to make of it. I, I know 
and respect the complaints that Kyle Busch had, uh, that Brad Keselowski spoke of about passing at Pocono with this rules package. But the fact of the matter is this has always been just a, a tough racetrack in which to secure track position the traditional way. I would like to see the PJ1 have some sort of impact. I would like to see drivers have an opportunity to showcase every bit of their talent and in lieu of cornering ability, then I don't know, let's see what they can do uh, with uh, some some side-by-side opportunity. That's what I'm wanting to see, some some change in those restart numbers just to confirm that yes, this PJ1 experiment does work and Pocono is better for it. And let's not forget, we were just there at the beginning of June. It seems so long ago. And Kyle Busch won the race, led nearly half the race, and, and still complained about how bad the racing was. I just uh, remember that because it seems like a long time ago. But remember, he got out and said he passed like one car all day and just dominated, leading to what I want to see, um, uh, kind of a two oldies but goodies. I want to, I'd love to see a first-time winner, you know, like get that Hendrick stuff going again, uh, whether it be a... Uh, the Byrons of the world, maybe Suarez, Eric Jones, um, you know, first time winner this season. I also would like to see three drivers lead 30 laps or more. A little parody. Why not? I called for it a few weeks ago. It ended up almost working out to a T. Why not call for it again? That's what I want to see at Pocono. Kind of leads to what you were saying, David. Let's make it a racetrack, a driver's racetrack where we can get some action going here. Three drivers, 30 laps led each. That's what I want to see. And David, remember last week we had our first scouting report of the Motorsports Analytics Positive Regression Scouting Network. Uh, Still calls for entries, right? We have Chandler Smith knocked off. Uh, We have a scout for him. We have a scout for Haley Deegan. Uh, Remind uh, the listeners how they can get involved and uh, who maybe they can choose. Right. Head to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com. You can help support the podcast by becoming a scout. You can request a young driver that you will send us monthly scouting reports for, and we will read them on this very podcast. Uh, or I can assign you a a good prospect, and maybe you, uh, you'll become a fan of a driver uh, just randomly selected on your behalf. It is fun. We enjoy learning from you about these young drivers. We've got some reports on the way for, like you said, Haley Deegan, Derek Krause, Sam Mayer is off the board uh, so if there is a young driver that has your interest right now, hurry, uh, because they're uh, they're not going to last very long. Uh, there's a finite number of these young drivers. So um, be sure to uh, check out scout.motorsportsanalytics.com. Yeah, and make, get local. If you're one of our listeners, first of all, we appreciate it, of course, but that means you're a racing fan. Maybe you're out at the local tracks, your local track, every weekend, learning these names that maybe we don't know. Get local. There is such a push right now, David, for you know grassroots, my track, my local track, all that stuff. If you're a listener and there's someone, uh, an up-and-comer that we don't know about, you know that you're watching every week, join our scouting network and tell us about him or her. We'd love to hear about it. Uh, I think that would be a really cool aspect. And this has been a great idea so far, David. So I hope we get in some more submissions for names that I haven't even heard of. I'd love to hear them from our scouting network. That'd be really awesome. Agreed. All right, good episode, episode 27, the Jimmy Spencer edition. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcast, we are there and available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff does help this podcast gain visibility. Sometimes I read the reviews, David, and they are quite 
quite nice, the stuff that people write. So I really appreciate that. Leave us a review. It really does help. Uh, your spreading the word is appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them on this podcast. We do it often. So reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, what are you working on? This week on The Athletic, I wrote about Kyle Larson's recent speed surge, why it happened and what it means going forward. Also a deep dive into the top restarters and most improved restarters will be posted likely by the time you're reading this. Uh, I'm on Twitter at David Smith MA. So I encourage you all to follow along. I I write for uh, many suitors. You can collect them all there. And it's all good information. I will be heading to Pocono by the time, a little after this post. So if you are hearing this Thursday morning, that means you are a subscriber, which is awesome. First of all, thank you for that. Make sure you watch Race Hub Thursday night. I'll be talking with Ryan Blaney uh, before he heads off to Pocono at the shop over at Team Penske. Uh, I talked to Ryan Childers this week. Good talk about uh, you know coming off the win in New Hampshire and what the season has done, how all the changes have affected uh, crew chiefing and his thoughts on that. So look on my Twitter. Twitter at Alan Cavana for that. Also on Thursday's Race Hub, the latest edition of What's in a Number, all about the number 11, David, which is the winningest number in NASCAR history. Almost had another one in New Hampshire, but so far, 213 wins. So that'll be good stuff on Race Hub. And then, of course, watch all weekend, watch all the racing. Big Fox, Fox Network on Saturday for the truck race, and then race day on FS1. We Your race day starts with race day on Sunday from Pocono on FS1. I'll be there for that as well. So a full weekend of racing on the way. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavama. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. We'll see you next week. Join Tubi in celebrating Black History Month with the largest free collection of black cinema streaming every day of the year, including exclusive Tubi originals, Howard High, and Pass the Mic. Tubi. Watch free.